You are listening to the Indie Game Development Podcast Show, sponsored by CurioSoft Kids Games and the letter E. Visit the Indie Game Development Podcast site at www.indiegamepod.com. Welcome to the Indie Game Development Podcast Show. With me today is a special guest. How about you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Eric Hermanson. Um, and uh, my company is Caravel Games, and uh, I have done some work there uh, programming games and then later on contributing writing and art and stuff to them. And some of the games we've made are, um, uh, they're all actually, they're all actually in the Drod series. That's uh, the name that we use to identify our games, but they, the games we have are Drod King Dugan's Dungeon, uh, the more recently Drawed Journey to Root Hold, and then we're in beta for Drawed the City Beneath. Um, so they're, they're puzzle games for people that like to uh, sit and think about what they're going to do in the game, not necessarily like a, a Tetris, but uh, more like the classical definition of a puzzle where you contemplate on a solution and then you do it. How did you get into games? Well, um, I started off... Um, uh, with a, a K-Pro 2 that uh, my mother brought home because she was a writer and she wanted something besides an electric typewriter to uh, use for writing her books. And um, my parents didn't want me to spend all my time playing games on the computer. They would, they would say, uh, you know, you can only be on the computer for an hour because uh, otherwise they, they thought I would just spend all my time playing games. Um, and then I... <coughs> Doing some things where I would I would actually change the games on the computer and, and program on it, and, and they left me alone. But we had we had these games on the, the Kipro that were just letters on the screen, but there weren't any graphics for the Kipro. You, you just had like a, a little E or a plus sign would would be a robot or something. And, and uh, I started out all I wanted to do was just kind of uh, change the play so it looked better, and so I would go in. And the letters into other letters <laughs> that looked better. And uh, then later on I started making my own games and, and uh, got better computers and with graphics and sound and just kind of went from there. How did you get into the indie game scene? Well, I was working as a business application programmer and I wanted to learn... Um, See, nobody was really wanting me to learn C. They wanted me to keep working with Visual Basic because it was quick and simple and good for writing the kind of applications they wanted. So, so I needed some kind of project for me to go and learn C so I could get out of this Visual Basic. <laughs> uh, well, I just I made a, a game and it was uh, it was it was the first version of uh, Drawd. And I just kept on messing around with it, and eventually it sort of looked like, hey, I could make this into a real game, and like, uh, I don't know, maybe make some money off of it with uh, shareware. And uh, that was like back in back in the 90s, and um, you'd look at games like uh, Doom and or, or Wolfenstein, and um, you would think, oh, those guys, uh, all they did was they, they put a game out, and a shareware demo, and they made a whole bunch of money. So 
that, well, you know, I don't even want to make a whole bunch of money. I just want to make a little bit. Uh, and I would be happy with that. So I, I, I tried my hand at it. And, uh, the, the, first, uh, the first publisher that I took, that I took the game to um, was Webfoot. Um, they picked it up and they, they and sold it. And I made something like $500 off of it. It wasn't, it wasn't lucrative at all. Um, so that, that was my start. And then later on, I, I, I basically made an agreement with Webfoot that all the rights for the game would revert back to me. And I wanted to uh, just release the game so that people could continue playing it. Um, it was no longer available for sale. So I, I uh, just made an open source version of it. That was back in uh, 2002. Okay. I sort of picked up momentum from there, and eventually we got back into making uh, commercial releases. When you uh, made a deal with Webfoot, was it for web distribution or was it for retail distribution? Well, it was both. Um, and, and they, I, I mean, I, I don't want to make them sound like they were bad people. I actually oh no, <laughs> quite a bit with them. And it wasn't like they, they screwed me over or anything, but... They were kind of new to the whole um, publishing game. Uh, so what they did is they found a, a bunch of small game makers and, and made publishing deals with them and said, we want you know exclusive um, rights for, for publishing. And you know, right now, in, in these days, it sounds kind of ridiculous uh, as far as an indie developer is concerned to sign away exclusive rights to a game unless he's just going to make a, a lot of money. But back then it was, it was not so obvious. And there were a lot of uh, developers that said, okay, this is good, and, and they signed up. And, and Webfoot had all these games to sell. They had, they had you know, maybe 30 games to sell, and they were, and they tried. It just didn't work out for them for various reasons. Uh, and they, they, had, they got the games onto CDs that went into retail. Um, at one point they said, well, um, 3D is going to be the big thing, and we're not doing so well with all these little 2D games, so let's just clear out all this, all these little games we've got for sale and concentrate on making 3D games, and that's what they did. How did you feel when you got your $500? Were you excited? Was it like, wow, this is pretty cool, I made a game and got this much money? or? Uh, or was it like uh, no biggie? It, it, it was it was kind of anticlimactic because um, you know uh, I wasn't just sitting around waiting for that check to come in. I was you know consulting and had other stuff bringing money and it had nothing to do with games. So it wasn't like I was financially dependent on that. But when it came in, it was kind of like okay, keep your day job. Uh, it's not like gonna happen for you with this deal in particular. It wasn't like I said, you know, let's not do any more games. It was just like I said, um, you're going to have to be persistent at this and not expect anything terrific to happen right away. When you made D-Rod or Drod, did you, did you want to do a puzzle game or did you, or were you just doing something that you felt was appropriate for learning C? Well, I, I actually, uh, the full history of the development is is like is really kind of 
long and involved and, and boring too. So I, I have to like summarize and leave out little details. But like I started out making that game um, like around '92 uh, or so, but it wasn't even on a computer. I was just in a a, a, a coffee shop and I had a, a chess board and I had like little pieces on it. I didn't have a computer at that time. I was broke. Uh, I would just I move a piece on the chessboard, and then I'd like move all the other pieces, like I envisioned the game happening. I would just prototype the game like pre-computer that way. So it was like in my head for a long, long time. And when I finally got it on the computer, I, yeah, I was excited about it. I, I, I didn't. It wasn't like I was thinking, okay, I'm going to make a game that I think will be a big seller. It was just what I, the game that I wanted to play. Is what I think you mentioned open sourcing the game around 2002. Um, what inspired that, and what was the intention behind it? Yeah, well, I wasn't paying attention to draw it at all for uh, a long period of time. Um, and some fans of the game started up a message board for it without me initiating that. <laughs> And it said, hey, we started a message board, and, and you should come join it. And I said, okay. And then there's all this um, kind of um, enthusiasm and support for the game happening there. And I'm thinking, uh, this game hasn't been updated in like four or five years. And the, these people get so much out of something that I, I barely did anything with. <laughs> And, and it's like they're eking out ways to find more enjoyment from it. Like they would say, okay, do this room, guys, but do it like uh, a special way that makes it harder. Like let, let the room fill up with monsters before you kill any monsters. And, and just do it that way just because it will be more fun or it will be a challenge. And Because like there wasn't a level editor, so they had to find some other way to, to uh, enjoy the game and extend the play of it. <laughs> And so, so I, I looked at that and I thought it's just it's just kind of sad if there's nothing else that they can do. So I should be able to just dump all my source code and just let people, if they want to update it, they can they can do stuff with it. And so I I started off doing that, and then I looked at my source code and it was like the, the stuff I written when I was just learning C and it was so terrible. And I, I looked at it and said, God, I got to rewrite little bits of this or nobody's going to want to touch it because I was just kind of embarrassed and I didn't want to put out such a terrible code. And, the, and I just kept on rewriting little bits and pieces and eventually I, I literally rewrote the thing from scratch. There's like maybe 20 lines of code that, were, that stayed in there from uh, the original code. And uh, I'm glad I did because if I hadn't rewrote it, it None of the other uh, contributors would have um, joined up and, and had so much source code to it later. It was just a real mess. Before you released the source code, do you know how big the community was around the game? It wasn't big at all. It was just uh, it was just maybe 20 people, and they, they sort of made up with their lack of numbers with enthusiasm. I, I kind of made it sound just now like it was a big upswelling of support, but no, it was just it was just a small cult following that just really dug the game. So um, I was just trying when I started out. I was just wanted to give them something to to keep playing with. Uh, then 
you know, it, it's it, the game is is such that um, people can make a, a career out of it and keep playing it for a long time. So it's like w once once you get somebody to play the game, they'll keep playing it for a few years. So if it, the people that we picked up um, back in 2002 and 2003, uh, they just sort of stuck around, and that's that's why there's uh, you know like. 3,000 people signed up on our forum now is, is because people just kind of stick around after after they, they latch onto the game. It's like they found a little home. After you open sourced it, what happened with the community? What happened with the game? Did you get people to volunteer to help? Um, how did that all shape up? Well, yeah, a lot of people volunteered to, volunteered to help to begin with. And I went to... Uh, SourceForge. SourceForge, and I posted an ad, and I said, um, I've got this game, and here's what it's about, and it used to be a commercial product, and I'm you know, doing some upgrades to it, and uh, I, I would like some help from uh, for programming, anyone interested. And I got 10 replies in one day, and I thought that was great. I really did. I, I was I just thought, oh, this is, I never need to worry about finding programming help again. All I have to do is just uh, post an ad up on the SourceForge, and it'll just be there. But the truth of it was, you you have to spend a lot of time um, getting people up to speed just so they can build the project. And a lot of a lot of the people that answered weren't weren't really. Um, I'm not going to say they're bad programmers, but they just they, they were entry level. You know, they were just not um, that experienced, and, and they weren't they, they weren't good at uh, getting a lot of work done on the project. And it, it took. A lot of iterations of uh, staying out, finding somebody that was interested in helping, and then they come and help you, and, and then they kind of find out if, if they want to put more into it. And um, after a while, the quality of the people on the project just goes up gradually because um, the people that aren't really as interested in the game, they, they just move on to other things. And then the people who are left behind are. are the, the hardcore uh, uh, project members that contribute a lot, and, and there's, I mean, it, it takes it takes years to, to find these people. But once I, once I find them, I, I, I really have to uh, count myself lucky and, and try to keep them interested, so they'll stick around. How many solid recruits would you say you found through SourceForge? Well, I, there were, out of, out of that first batch of 10 people that answered, um, one, one guy, his name was Michael Walsh Dugan, um, he, he put in a lot of code and he was solid. And then there was maybe four people that I would say they, they either were uh, like, a, I, I made my effort back in, in helping them. And then the rest were just kind of a loss, kind of like, you know, I spent more time talking to them about how to build the project and, and then what they actually contributed. So I would say only, only one really solid contributor from that first batch. And since then, I, I stopped. I didn't, I didn't post, post ads on, um, on SourceForge after that. After that, I decided, waited for people to say, hey, I, I would really like to uh, do something. And, Usually they would 
it would start by contributing some source that, that would uh, that would change the, the game for the better. Then um, after I put in a few patches from them, I, I would say, okay, well, why don't we give you um, access to the repository? It looks like you know what you're doing, so why don't we get you in the team and you can, you can contribute that way if you, if you want. And uh, sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. Did you find any, like, best practices or processes that you used to vet the potential programmers and potential contributors to the project? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like um, you don't want to look the gift horse in the mouth. You, you, and uh, there's a certain um, guardedness I have about asking anyone to join the project. If It might put me in that situation where I have to say, um, you know, even though you'd like to help us, you're not really helping us. I, I absolutely hate being in that situation. It's just so uh, awkward and ungraceful. Um, so the, the, the first uh, gate that we have is, um, can you build the project? And, you know, we have some instructions that are out there, and, and we sort of you know, wait for somebody to just show they, they know how to build it. It's really actually kind of hard to build. There's all these weird dependencies. And anybody that can build it, it they likely have a two or three years of experience behind them in programming. Um, but then the, the other thing is, um, we only we have a very limited number of people that have access to the repository, um, and there, there are people that that are, I've seen um, that I've reviewed their code, or Mike has reviewed their code for a number of patches. Uh, Mike is my partner, who's the dev lead on Droid. Um, and then we, we, you know we, we trust not only their their programming ability, but their their style and decisions about. Um, design of code because there's some people that are really uh, able programmers but they just they don't have the you know they're more hackers than, than um, software engineers so yeah I mean there's it comes down to to uh, being very cautious about, about um, inviting people into the project okay and so the best way to do that is to just have different levels of barriers until until they finally get full access. Right. Well, let somebody okay. build the project first, and then maybe review some of their patches, and, and maybe get them into the repository and, and kind of review their changes as they come in. Okay. So you have this team, and you're improving on the code. Uh, what happens next? Well... One thing that happened uh, in 2003 is is um, one of the contributors sort of um, um, put in a lot more time on the project than anyone else. His name was Mike Reimer. I turned over development to him, and it sort of left me without that much to do except, well, there was plenty to do. There was uh, marketing, there was story and artwork. Actually, I wrote music for the game, and um, it was kind of like I, I had two stages of my Drod career, and one was programming, and then after that, I, I moved on to going to take over the, the more creative aspects of it. Um, and then Mike, Mike, he kept on doing the programming and also the, the game design for our later products. 
and then I worked on trying to get the artwork and uh, music and story and everything approved the marketing. Now, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm really good at all those things. The, the truth is I'm kind of um, half-assed at all of them. It's sort of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none thing. Um, but the advantage is that I, I could see the big picture, making some decisions, and I, I could uh, jump around and fill in where volunteers or contractors weren't able to plug in the holes and we just need something done to get a release out. At this time, were you thinking of making this uh, still an open source release or were you thinking of making it something where you would actually uh, sell it as a product? Well, we're still open source and I guess one thing that I have to explain to uh, many people, and I don't say this with uh, frustration, is that you can make an open source game and sell it. Um, so, at first, that sounds not intuitive, counterintuitive. So, right. yeah. Yeah, uh, but but no, we, we around. Uh, see, actually, I have I have a little calendar like right in front of me. It shows like the release dates because I have a hard time keeping them all straight. But 2005. That's when we released Draw Journey to Root Hold, and we said, okay, this is going to be our, our product. Um, it, it was all open source, but we retained ownership of all of the, the media. And it's important to, for us to keep the open source status. We're legally obliged to. We're morally obliged to because the contributors from uh, way back in 2002, they gave us their source code based on the idea that it would be uh, put out into the world as open source. So we have to stick to that. There's, there's no way out of it, really, unless we do another game that isn't based at all on, on the source code that was contributed earlier. And that, by the way, is a, a huge, it can be a huge burden. So if anyone's thinking, I, I want to make an open source game because it's going to go faster and more programmers are going to jump in, okay, that's great, but, but your, their legacy is going to add some restrictions to what you can do um, down the road. So you, um, you mentioned open sourcing it in 2003, and then um, you released in 2005. Uh, during those two years, was it mostly revamping the code? Um, what, where did all the time go during that well, time? Yeah, um, I, I guess the, the thing about Drawd is that it's almost a container of games rather than just one game itself. I mean, um, if you looked at a lot of the indie games that are released, um, many of them will have, like, one type of game element, and the whole game will be based on that, like, uh, you know, pushing a Sokoban-type box around, okay. But Drod, what we were doing is we were putting in, like, the game elements that might have gotten split into a number of different games in other hands. And it was kind of like we, we, we wanted to go big with it. We wanted all the players to be impressed when they played the game. And if, if, you, look at, if you look at Draw just from the presentation aspect of it and you look at the graphics and, and the sound and stuff, you won't be blown away. It's not going to register that, that high on, on your meter there. But if you were into it for the new types of puzzles that we came out with, um, it, it would definitely be your thing. Because 
we, we went through and we made something like, I don't know, maybe maybe 40 new game elements. And then we went through and reviewed them and, and we cut a whole bunch of them out because they just weren't that great or they weren't that fun. But we actually like programmed them, tried them out, um, and you know deleted the ones that just weren't as good. And uh, that would be just the game elements. Then we did the level design and, and and we had the same sort of process where a number of different authors would create levels for the game, and then we'd go through and review them, and some of them weren't that great, and they might get taken out, or they might get improved like four or five different times. And we had just uh, we had that going on, and that was very um, let's say there was a high bar to, to clear there because we had these hardcore players that were in there. Telling us that oh, this level wasn't any fun or it had bad continuity. Then there was the story and the recording of, of all the voices that went into it. And there's, uh, you know, there's there's like 90 minutes of music that, that were written for it. So it's like you look at the game and you can't even see all the work that went into it. Uh, but all that two years of work was there. And just, uh, I, sometimes I'm saddened that. <laughs> Someone who looks at the like the first few levels of the game just sees this kind of not very impressive, looks like retroactive mid '90s uh, graphics. You know, just kind of just kind of junky looking in some ways. I, I and uh, that wasn't what we what we worked on. We worked on on the game itself. Uh, you mentioned story overs and um, other types of content. Was that done by the community, or was that done by the programming team? Um, well, the the way that we did the you asked about the story, right? Yes, yeah, story, voiceovers, um, the right. the stuff that overlays all the code. Right. Um, so I, the way we did that is, it it kind of uh, we discovered this process for writing the story by accident. Um, in the, in the beginning, I was going to write the entire story, every single line of it almost. And I have this annoying thing that I do, and everyone on the project hates me for it, is I'll, I'll say, okay, this task is mine, and I'll, I'll get to it. Don't worry, I'll get to it, and I'll be busy, and, and everyone's waiting for me, and I'll bottleneck the whole project. So I started out, I wrote, I wrote an um, a overview of everything that should happen in like, each level, what, what's going to happen on the first level. Um, this character, Half, he's going to get kidnapped by a goblin, and then uh, Bethro, who is the uncle of Half, and Half, and the main character will decide he has to go find Half, and so that would be the first level. And then I'd write in about that same level of detail that you just heard, something for each level. And, and you know, it, that only took like maybe a few hours. And then I said, um, okay, so I'm going to come back. I'm going to flesh all this out for you guys. And I didn't. I mean, I, I was planning to, but what happened is all the people writing the levels just took that meager description and filled in all the writing and then um, uh, did all the hard work. And then I got to come back in a third, in a third stage and uh, go back and um, revise and punch up all their lines. And, and we did the same thing for uh, The City Beneath, our, our more recent project. And actually, it works pretty well because um, you don't have 
a high level of specification for the middle part, and you can hand it off to um, a bunch of uh, people making levels, and you give them creativity. You don't say like exactly how the, the story is going to be written, so so they get to have some fun with it. Um, and then at the in the third stage, you look at everything that's been written, and you notice that there's lots of plot holes, and there's lots of continuity problems, and, and maybe a, a style of a character speaking isn't consistent um, with the official way he should speak. And I, I go and I fix all, all that kind of thing, basically polish it up. Um, and it's a very quick way to write a lot of story content for a game. Um, and uh, we'll probably use it again uh, for our next game. When you released the game, um, since you had so many contributors, was there any kind of question about royalties or some of these other issues that could come up when, when you kind of, you when you have an open source product, but at the same time you're going to try to make money by developing content on top of it? Yeah, we started out saying um, all the contributors uh, were were paying royalties, uh, except we didn't do that for beta testers, but for the developers. Um, we gave everyone royalties once we got to the commercial product part of it. And uh, we were very careful to explain what we were doing to all the past contributors. And I, so some of those emails I wrote, some of those uh, message board posts I wrote concerning that were the most carefully worded, carefully considered things I've ever written in my life. Um, in the end, no one was upset. And, but it's not something you can do casually. You have to think about every single person and what, how they're going to take it and, and what they might consider would be owed to them, and then make an effort to, to be completely fair and, and transparent. Um, so it worked out. Um, we stay away from royalties now. It's, it's hard to um, keep track of of what everyone should be getting. Um, what I have been doing is making flat rate um, payments to some people based on the projected sales of the game and their contribution. So it's not the same thing as like paying an hourly rate or even negotiating for the fair market value of their services. It's Sometimes it's just like we're not making that much money, guys. We, if we were, you know, we would, we would hire you on as a contractor and, and have you do it um, for like, you know, 40 bucks an hour or whatever. Um, but we, we still aren't making that much money, so we just tell them this is our good faith effort to give you um, a share of what we're making that's proportionate to the effort you put in. But royalties are, are just a big pain. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't start another royalty deal with anyone right now. Now that you have a big community, would it be worthwhile to find volunteers, or do you still feel that it's um, <clears throat> in your best interest to pay someone a fee to do some of the material? It depends. I mean, there, there's different tasks, and some are more suited to volunteers, and some are not. And we got a mixture of, of volunteer help and paid help. Um, all throughout, and um, like getting a, a musician to write up a big score for the game, 
I, it's not, I, I didn't see that as something that could be accomplished uh, with volunteer help very well. So you know, we, we paid a contractor to do all the music. And um, level design, people are more willing to just jump in and do that. Beta testing, people are more willing to do that. Voiceover work, we, we kind of split it. There's some people that um, have large parts that are several pages for them to read, and um, they're paid contractors. And other, other parts are a lot smaller, so we, we just say, you know, if you've got a spare hour and it seems like fun, and uh, we can pay you by giving you a free copy of the game and your name in the credits, and that sounds good. We'd love to have your help, and that seems to be enough. I, I hope that there isn't going to be some point down the road where um, we have a lot of trouble with someone who thinks that we cheated them somehow by not paying them for something we were making money from. But I think the key to making that work is just always telling people up front what, what, what to expect and asking, well, you know, this is what we're offering. Would you like to do it? And as long as, as, long as people know what to expect, I, I think it works okay. You mentioned that um, during the development of the game, you passed off the main programming duties to someone else, and you took up a variety of different tasks, including marketing. Did you do any marketing before you released the game? Uh, no. I, I was of the opinion, and I'm not an expert on, on whether this is right or wrong, that um, you don't want to spend a lot of time on marketing until you have something to sell. So I didn't actually want to go around and, and pitch uh, you know, my, uh, the game for possible preview coverage or something on different sites unless that coverage was going, going to bring somebody to my website to buy, buy the game. So before release, I didn't do anything. And it's easy to make decisions like that when you don't have a lot of time. And, you know, <laughs> It, when, you know there's like a, a crap load of stuff you should be doing and you just don't have time for it, so you'll, you'll tend to uh, drop things like that. You released the game, and then um, what are you thinking then? Well, when we released the game, um, there's just a flurry of uh, communication that has to be done. And even like without trying to take advantage of the release uh, to market it, it just sort of happens almost on its own that um, there'll be a ton of uh, support requests coming in right all at once. There'll be a ton of like kind of blown away by that stuff. So after releasing a game, I first we, we do like a, a community release first. And we don't advertise um, that the game has been released elsewhere then because we're still just reeling. We're just reeling from that first blitz of uh, people um, talking about things that they need for the game to work. And maybe there's a bug that, that gets found that's really important to fix in that first community release. And I'm, at that point, I'm almost hoping that I don't hear from a reviewer or a site that wants to you know, put the game on, on, on their site because it's like I, I can't even, I don't even have the time yet. So after that settles down, then then send out a press release. And that might be like two months after the first release, that community release. And um, 
a first press release, uh, you, I'll get a bunch of people replying back, and that'll be hard for me to keep up with, too. And probably not for somebody else who's, who's doing this full time. You have to um, consider that, that I, I have a day job, and I'm trying to get over full time to the game stuff, but um, it's still very hard to keep up with re the request for distribution agreements and re review copy requests from um, that come from a press release, at least for me. And that's even like saying, like, you know, I might get like 10 hits in two or three days off of a, a press release for a new game. And, and um, you know, that's not a lot, by, even by any developer standards, because there's people that release um, games and get a lot more hits back than, than I do. But for me, it's a lot, and I, I have to kind of meter what I can handle. In terms of marketing, what what steps or tactics do you take once you release the game? And do you also um, enlist some of the members of your community to help you with the marketing? Right, <clears throat> right. Um, the thing about the the community is that you can't control them. You you can't like say, hey, would you guys go out and um, post in this forum about my game? And you know. It, it, that's sleazy and doesn't it backfires on you. So, like, it, but but what you can do is you can be good to your community, and you can tell them what what you're up to as far as gaining exposure for the game, and how it's a constant battle for just someone to pay attention to you, especially when you have a game like Drod, which you look at the screenshot, you're not impressed. Um, and then they kind of pick up on that, and they say, okay, well, this company's been okay to me, and Eric seems like an okay guy, and uh, maybe I'll go help him. And w one thing that happened uh, kind of as a result of this attitude, I like to think, is um, there was this guy who contacted me, and he said, uh, can I, can I um, give away a copy of Drod to uh, the Penny Arcade guys? I'm going to go see him. And I said, well, sure you can. There's no problem with that. If you want to do that, that helps me. And uh, and I, I gave him, like, a, another copy to replace the copy he was giving away. And then he, like, went out to – he was, like, a student at a college and um, uh, uh, what's this guy's name? Gabe and Tyco. One of those two guys showed up. And he, he gave him a, a bottle of Jägermeister and a, a copy of Drod. <laughs> and – Drod got written up in this tiny little blurb at the bottom of one of their daily columns. And that one mention brought in, like, uh, probably $2,000 worth of sales just in that month. And just weird stuff like that. I don't You can't really plan that. You can't. I mean, he sort of did, but I, I can't. I, it wouldn't be my style to go give, give uh, somebody a bottle of Jägermeister and a copy of my game. But that guy sort of knew that would work or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, so most of the marketing is press releases or trying to contact reviewers. Yeah, um, and I, I, I uh, worked with uh, Joe Lieberman, who you've had on your show. Oh yeah. And uh, I have a lot of respect for him, and he helped me out with uh, some releases he he wrote. Um, Actually, he wrote all the releases except maybe one that I kind of like gave to him and said, I want it to be like this. And, and 
made it a little bit like the way he wanted it to be and sent it out. Um, so I sent out a bunch of releases with him. He's no longer, as you know, uh, servicing the indie uh, community. Uh, so I'm going to be on my own now writing press releases. Um, let's see, the, 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 uh, the other thing was the reviewers being like really nice to the reviewers when they contact you. You want to like give them everything they ask for and then volunteer a little bit more like, um, well, if you want, I could do a, an interview for your site. Um, I've got some extra uh, screenshots I can give you as exclusive material and stuff like that, you know. Um, so basically kissing reviewers' butts and then, and then uh, uh, trying to remember a little bit about the people that you have contact with so um, you can come back later on and, and say, oh, do you remember me? You did, you did um, this feature on Draw It a while back. We got a new game, you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of follow-up work that I can't even say I, I properly do. I want to get more organized about it. Um, I know there's, there's a lot of uh, possibilities if you like keep a database of all your contacts and, and uh, keep a little log of when you talk to you know this this writer or this reviewer. And um, um, you know I, I, I want to uh, get more into that. I'm hoping to at some point be making enough from the games where I could say we can get somebody to do the grunt work and the money I pay him will break even. And just going out and, and keeping contact with the different the different press people out there. Because you can make a full-time job out of it. It's just a question of can you do it yourself? No, you can't. Okay, can you get someone else, like maybe a college student to come in and do it? And You know, I haven't figured that part out yet. I don't know. Maybe you have. What do you think? <laughs> um. Yeah, whatever what you said, and um, some of the stuff that Joe said on the previous show, uh, you know, adding in terms of marketing, what I found also useful is adding a lot of content, at least for me, you know, so content that people are searching for, parents are searching for. So I'm not sure if that's what you, if that's a strategy that you've also done, which is um, provide content that people are looking for in terms of the niche that you're servicing. You know, like puzzles and other types of puzzles and stuff like that. Right, um, and and we did like um, we did so, we did quite a bit of content, and we have a contest that we run every month, and it'll be a different type of contest every month. Some of the contests are are really oriented just towards the existing players, but occasionally we'll make a contest that. Um, other people can get in on it and it'll get promoted outside of the site. Like, for example, uh, when we were recording parts for Draw the City Beneath, uh, voice actors, we made a contest for recording a voice. And um, I went out to a number of different forums and said, hey, anybody like to record funny voices? And uh, if, you, if you want, you can, you can come and enter this contest. And it kind of kill two birds with one stone because I, I had auditions for a lot of parts for the game and, and found some people even outside of the community to, to jump in there. But also, it, you know, it trickled in a few new extra people that could look at our site. So the, there's um, the contest we do. We changed our, our forum into a, a content management system so that any post a user makes can be converted into a, a web page. Um, 
So we made it like really easy for the users to create new articles or um, maybe they want to post a, a, a fan art. They can, they can make a post on our forum. They already know how to do that because they've been on the forum for a while. And then though we don't really even have a web, um, a web admin. He's just a guy that finds a post on the forum and he moves it over to another folder and it's, it's on. So um, that, that helps us get new content up fairly frequently. And how active are the contests that you sponsor every month? It tends to grow in participation um, a little bit each month. And some contests are a lot more popular than others. Um, so like if you plotted a graph, it would start off with four or five people per contest. And then more recently, it's like we usually have at least 30 people. And then some of the contests have had uh, closer to 100 people in them. And then there's the people that come and don't enter it, but they, they vote on the results or they just see what um, what the other entrants are doing. Um, so, well, what was the difference between a contest that had a hundred participants versus the contest that got four to five participants? Um, well, to begin with, we just didn't have as many people on the forum, so that that would be like the main factor. But then I found that there were certain things that always worked better. Um, like if you have a, a contest which invites people to discuss as they are playing or, or participating, then that, that is a lot better for getting more participation. Like, I had some contests where it would be like, on a certain date, put in your entry and then we'll discuss it. But don't talk about the contest the whole time because that might give somebody an unfair advantage. And, and then that, that wasn't that wasn't any good for building community and, and making people excited about being in the contest. So I would change the contest rules later on to say anybody can talk about whatever aspect of the contest they want, even if that gives an unfair advantage, you just have to live with it. And then there's all this talking about it. And other things I found were um, if you start a contest and you're kind of uncertain about um, about how how well it's it's uh, going to be received. Then you ask right away, so who's going to join? Who's going to play? And it kind of like makes people step forward and commit, and then they, they're in. Um, not like it's a binding contract or anything, but it, it just just helps when you get it started. So like um, some of our contests are creative. Like uh, there was one where we said, draw a map of the world of Drod put all the continents and countries however you like and make up names of places. Okay, that's the contest. And then it was just quiet and I said, okay, so who's going to enter? Who's, who's going to be in it? And some people said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And so I, I found that's like another trick to kind of get participation up. After you released your first game, what inspired you to do a second game? And how did you come upon that uh, decision? Well, the first commercial game was um, was Drod Journey to Rude Hold, and then the one we released after that was uh, Drod King Dugan's Dungeon. And we switched to a, a very practical mindset with little bursts of uh, of uh, you know exhilaration and, uh, and thrill along the way. But um, I think Mike and I, Mike is my my business partner, uh, the Dev Lead, 
um, we just we wanted to make the whole game company work. So it started off with all sorts of different kind of um, personal motivations, and then it became almost institutional. Like, let's get this next game out because that's what a game company does to survive. We want this game to be released, and then you know we'll make the next game. It's almost there's a little bit of a factory mentality. Not that we're just churning out crap, but um, you know, there's many days where the last thing that Mike or I want to do is 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 work on the draw game. But you know, we do it anyways because you know there's something deeper down there that pushes us forward. And and even when we don't feel it, we know that we'll feel it later. So it's like we're listening to some older version of ourselves that um, told us we had to work that day. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's some you you turned out a whole bunch of games. I mean, you made a lot of games. I know yeah. that, that there's some days you wake up and you don't want to work on them, but you do anyways. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this the second game. Was there anything different between the second game and the first game? Well, uh, Drug King Dugan's Dungeon, and this is like the confusing part because we. Um, we actually released all the, the levels for the, that game previously, and, and we were just looking for a way to productize it quickly. And it was Mike's idea. He said, well, um, we've got this old game you released, and you were giving it away for free. Why don't, we just, why don't we just put it into our new engine, spruce up the levels, add voice acting to it, and make it into a, a product? And um, so, so that, that, that was how King Dugan's Dungeon got released. Then, if you're asking about the city beneath, which is you know our, our third commercial release and the one we're in beta with now, um, for for that, I I think we, we just we wanted to um, <clears throat> make a number of large improvements to the engine to make the game more interesting and also more uh, RPG-like, uh, so it could tell a greater story. Um, that, and and uh, so we worked on the city beneath, and we had a lot of things that we decided were uh, out of our scope, and we didn't want to do them because uh, it would make it drag out too long. And we cut a whole crap load of features out and, and, and said, okay, let's do this. And even what we had was still pretty grandiose, but we had to reel it back. Um, and so it took us like another you know, two years to, to get... get uh, the city beneath, as far as it's as, as it's been now, and we had planned to only take a year with it, but uh, it doesn't always go how you plan. So, after your second title, you're you're starting this project, and um, talk more about it then, and and how is it exactly different than the previous two titles? Okay, um, so the city beneath, um, the thing with with it that makes it largely different than the previous ones is we decided we would put in all the, all the little pieces that are needed to make a game that's like an adventure or an RPG. So when you're playing Draw It, it's, it's about solving puzzles. You go into a room and you kind of stare at it and you figure out what to do and, and do it. And um, in the previous games we had a, a linear progression where as you're playing uh, little bits of the plot would be revealed. And in, in The City Beneath, we decided we would have uh, kind of a, 
uh, what's up, sort of linear? It's like you, you go out in different directions. And uh, okay. so that's not that big a, of a deal for because there, there's a lot of games out there that do it. Um, but there aren't that many games that are just uh, about solving puzzles that also include um, an, an adventure-like story. I mean, not, not of the type that you see, um, like, like um, okay, so you're playing this game and you're solving a puzzle and you'll come across a character and he'll tell you, well, you need to, you need to uh, do this or that, or um, or uh, he'll, he'll give a little speech and you'll listen to that, and and it, it's not like we're we're making the player play an adventure game or an RPG, um, but we wanted to give the person a sense that this isn't just an abstract world where they're solving puzzles. They're, there's, there's events that matter to the character. There's you know, alliances you can have with uh, different people. There's people that kind of, they, they, they trick you or they try to get you to think a certain thing, but it's not true. Uh, there's some twists in the game where the, the, the character will suddenly do the exact opposite you'd expect him to do. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to add some drama to it. And it's not, it's not, that easy to do because you're not playing a visceral game here. You're not playing a simulation of, of a, a real world. It's still very abstract. So the, the challenge we had was can we add the story in without upsetting players who are mainly there to, to solve the, these puzzles? Um, and, and one of the things we did is we limited cutscenes. Um, we didn't want to have one guy talking for 10 minutes and then it starts off on the next thing. A lot of times you get to move around while, while characters are still talking um, and you go out about your business, you're still playing the game, they're blabbing at you and you can pay attention to what they're saying. Um, you, can, you can kind of uh, keep playing too though. It's not like you have uh, the text come up and little button says click here to continue and then they say something else and, um, we, we knew that wouldn't go over very well so we wanted to keep the interaction there um, so there's that and then, then there's just like a, a lot of uh, a lot of new elements were added and we have we have this challenge of bringing new types of puzzles to our existing players because if we just throw out something that has been done in a whole bunch of other games, they'll kind of they'll be let down, and they'll they'll, they'll think this isn't like this isn't as good as it used to be. And they had like these expectations from the previous games that um, we might give them the, the the same thing they had, the same type of experience they had before. But we can't do that by just giving them the same game as before, because it won't be new. Um, so, so that, that was kind of what we were trying to achieve. So this new game is a cross between a puzzle, adventure, and RPG? Yes. And what inspired you to do a – well, you did mention the users and how they would kind of get bored if you did release another game that would be similar to the first two. Was there anything else that inspired the 
new type of gameplay and new direction? Oh, I, I think I, I, I had this larger view of this world that um, my main character was in. And the first few games um, hinted at it. And I wanted, I, I had really thought out that, that game world a lot, in a lot more detail than was presented in the first few games. And we would add like a little sequence in, in Journey to Ruid Hold where um, one character would hint at all these big conspiracies and, and uh, things that were going on inside of the game. And, and, and that would be the end of it. The player would go on and they'd never hear anything else about that. And I would think it's such a shame because I didn't just like make up a bunch of up there. I, I mean, it, it all kind of hooked in together in a way I wanted to present it. So, um, how I wanted, I wanted uh, the city beneath to be able to enlarge the world and make it more legitimate, so people would see it the way I did. How important do you feel story is for your players, um, in terms of why they play the game? For some people, it's really huge. I, a lot of people, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but uh, I know that, uh, it, I mean, it varies from player to player, but some people, they could take it or leave it. Um, I think most of the players really get into it, though, because I, I'm just constantly being surprised by the amount of um, knowledge people have racked up about the game world. There's some people that actually somehow manage to know more about it than me. I don't know how. But <laughs> I guess I had to forget some things that they still remember. Um, but there's like a, a guy would write an article about the physics of um, the Eighth. The Eighth is the name of the world of Drud. And he was like into physics and like he would make up all these explanations for why things worked as they did. And he said, so Eric, I want you to approve this and tell me if this is like the way it really works or not. And I said, I didn't, I didn't think out all that stuff. You did. <laughs> How am I supposed to, to tell you whether or not the, um, what the topology is of the world when you are pressing me to think of the stuff I haven't thought of. So like some people get really huge into the story and um, would, would want to add to it and they desperately want me to kind of like approve it and say this is part of the real world now and it just it, so there are people who are really huge into it and I'm, I'm sure it adds a lot to some people some players uh, enjoyment of the game and you mentioned it being in beta when do you expect for it to be released well I'm guessing about two months from now okay um, so we just got in almost all the the voice recording and now we have to uh, touch up graphics we have to get some more beta testers to look at um, but it's it's so it's so almost there that it, it's it's uh, frustrating you know it's, you, you want to put it out there and be done with it and move on to the next game um, it, to, I mean to me it's like what hasn't been released is terribly old at times. And so it's it's kind of unintuitive. Everyone else that I talk to that's in the player community is all excited about it, and it's a big new thing for them when it comes out. And for me, I've been working with it for the last few years, and other people have too. And there's a little bit of exhaustion, and um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a new thing at all. How have the beta beta players taken to the uh, changes in gameplay? Um, 
they, they have been, um, it's hard for them to say anything bad about it. Not because we, we uh, say they can't, but the beta testers we have now are, are very um, supportive of us. So it's hard for me to, to gauge what they think of it. I, I think that I think that it's gone over pretty well. It hasn't had the uh, it hasn't been like everyone's gushing about it. Uh, I think it works though, and nobody's saying it doesn't work. And that that was like the first thing that I was worried about is that uh, we'd add all this new story stuff, and then the old players would just say this isn't this is is messing up the game experience. And nobody said that, and they've all all the people we've invited have. Uh, enthusiastically played the game to the end and uh, been very invested in it and didn't go away on us. Great. And once you release this game, what are future plans for your studio? I want to get into multiplayer uh, games. So I've, I've uh, prototyped a number of multiplayer uh, puzzle games. Um, Mike Reimer has made his own prototypes, and we're going to get into like a, a little battle of prototypes. I think it's going to be like which game gets made next, and and uh, you know he and I will will talk about it and we'll decide. And he's got like a games that are he's got like one game that's already written. Um, it just needs like a lot of uh, work on polishing and uh, writing levels and stuff like that. And then I've got games that I've got, I've got like two design documents that are done for games and I've got um, some proto prototypes that I ran in my contest uh, for multiplayer online puzzle games. Um, so so we, we got no shortage of ideas, it's just going just gonna to be figuring out which one gets built next. Are you going to use the open source model for your next game too? It's a draw game, it will be open source. Okay. Otherwise, it'll be it'll be closed source. Okay, so the multiplayer puzzle game would would that be an extension of Drod, or would that be something totally different? It would probably be something totally different. Okay, and what would you say are your favorite indie games? I have spent hour upon hour playing Lux. I'm, I just I like it a lot. Even when I'm not that into it, it seems to kind of be a comfort game that I, I return to. Um, and then the um, uh, the Avernum RPG series, uh, Spiderwebs games, I, I, I like those a lot. And more recently, I've been playing a, a game called Fast Crawl, which is like a, it's a dungeon exploration game, but they, they make the game um, so that it lasts maybe an hour when you play it. So it's just gener generated or fresh each time. It's very uh, streamlined. And then uh, I also was uh, kind of big into Oasis for a while. I admired the game design quite a bit. How much time for your studio would you say you spend in terms of technical stuff, like, you know, programming the details of actually putting the game together versus the business side, which is marketing or just handling the community and other aspects? Um, Mike and I actually had a discussion about this, and, and we, <laughs> we we set the amounts that we were going to pay each other based on it. And, um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's about seventy percent development, and maybe seventy five. Okay, I'll say seventy five percent development and twenty five percent business and um, community support. Okay. But 
Hello? Hi. Oh, okay. Um, you cut out there. Um, what did you say again? Oh, I said, I said it should be more business, but for some reason it, the effort doesn't get put into the business side of it as much as the development because I, I think, um, well, it's hard to say. You get another game out and, and you're making money from that game right away. Um, and then right after you release that game, it, it seems very clear that you should put a lot of time into marketing that game um, because that is the like the most you have the most leverage when the game is new. You can get uh, more press attention to it. And then as time goes by, I think uh, Mike and I almost have little disagreements about the value of putting more time into marketing versus development or the value of marketing. And then. There's even like a third guy that's not even in our team that would say that I don't spend enough time on marketing or somebody doesn't spend enough time on it, and we're losing all sorts of money from that. But I think we end up going about 75-25. I'm not sure if that's ideal, but that's what we do. Okay. And your games involve a lot of story writing and voiceover work. Um, have you developed any kind of process to handle that large you know, amount of detail and work that goes into that part of the game? Yeah, um, so there's that, that three-step uh, writing process that we kind of hack together, which is overview, then the level designers do, like all the grunt work of writing the, um, the text that will go in the levels based on the overview. And then there's the polishing up of the writing. So, so that's, that's the writing part. Um, then for the voiceovers, um, I found out, early on that I wanted to have auditions for voice voice parts and get as many people as possible trying out. Um, and it worked out pretty well for us to record nearly everything from volunteer help. Um, the way that we set up the, the recording process is we have the script entirely finished. Uh, we don't start recording until the, the script is complete because we want it to be efficient. And we know that a lot of the volunteers that go and record lines, we're going to lose them if we if we say, okay, we uh, a month later, we need to have this part recorded again. Well, maybe they're they're uh, they went home from school or something and got married, no longer available. So we try to get all the recording done very quickly, and and we have like about 20. No, actually, is. 40 pages of dialogue for The City Beneath, and we recorded one month with uh, 10 or 12 um, volunteer actors. And then we would uh, take the larger parts and give them to um, contractors that were um, a little more dedicated to their craft and, and willing to uh, put more time on it uh, if they got paid. And I guess one thing that comes across a difference between um, people who are recording as, as volunteers and the contractors is that is that the the voiceover professionals are, are very good at making boring lines sound good. So if you've got like a, a character that he says a lot of things that aren't very interesting, but he has to say them, then it's almost it's good to have like like a professional behind that role because uh, uh, 
they can like take a sentence that doesn't sound very interesting and, and kind of put emphasis on this word or a pause here or there, and suddenly it'll sound good. But um, so so we, we run it through this this kind of quick and dirty process, and if it, it almost always happens that one or two people are saying, well, if we re recorded this line differently, it would sound a lot better. And to be honest, we're in such a big hurry, we always just kind of overwrite it, and unless it's really bad, we won't <laughs> record it anew. But the end result, when we get it out there, is, is it's not that bad. And the reviews, a lot of reviewers seem surprised that the voiceover is as good as it is compared to other parts of the game. Um, yeah, I was, I was listening to the voiceovers, and I was like, wow, sounds uh, really enthusiastic and, you know, just really lively. So, and the other question I had was, do you test, like, what types of tonality and voices your players will respond to the most, or is it just you put it out there, and as long as no one objects, it works? Well, okay, I don't do any, like, technical review of uh, the like, tonality and stuff, but, uh, but at a kind of more of a gut level or uh, uh, just uh, what I do is I look for a variety of different voices in the audition process. And what happens is since um, most of the people trying out are uh, males in the age range of, you know, 18 to 25, um, certain types of voices come up more often and it's almost like you have to give them a, a pass because they just have a kind of a, a voice that's already represented by one of your actors so there's like some guy who's got like this really low raspy voice and I like latched onto him like he was gold because he had a voice that was completely different than the others. I, I think the important thing is getting like a uh, cast with distinct voices uh, especially when you're working with, with uh, volunteer actors you just want to get that variety in there. Um, so we look at um, maybe three factors. One would be um, the person's voice. One would be their acting ability. And the last one would be their, their recording setup, because we had a number of people that had terrible recording setup. I'm sure you dealt with this, dealt with this too. Yeah. And that's how I was – but as long as – you can tell if the fidelity is decent or not, right? Yeah, you can. Okay. You can. And I went and talked to audiophiles, and they just laughed at me. I mean, I went into, like, the home recording uh, forum that's on the Internet and said, so I've got a bunch of actors, and they're spread out in different locations, and I want I don't want to record them in one studio. I want them to record at home and give me give me the audio to put in, in, my, in my game. And it, they, they just treated me like I was just the worst newbie idiot because, you know, they're used to having everything in a controlled environment. They have their own yeah. studio. You know, they, they bring people in, and then it's all recorded in the same place to them, and they spend, like, all sorts of money with their, with their studio. And, and I'm not saying that they're wrong, but the standards that an audiophile tries to reach once he gets into that game are a lot higher than what most people consider to be good. So you have that going for you if you're recording game audio. Okay. So also game audio gets mixed in with music and sound effects. And then we have one really big cheat. Um, the whole story is in a cave, so we can add uh, reverb. <laughs> oh, okay. 
It's a lot of artifacts out that way. Great. Uh, any last words you have for indie game developers out there? Um, yeah, I, I think I wish more indie game developers would just make the game they want to play. I, I see a lot of. Uh, I, I guess I, I can't judge whether people do, but it, to me, it always seems like uh, kind of a shame when when somebody's putting a lot of effort into making a, a game that isn't isn't really something that, that, that they love. Well, you know, if you just wanted to make money, you could, you could go and go and work a, as a uh, make accounting software or something for some very boring system, pulling a really nice salary. Um, so I, I, I think I, I don't. I guess I don't understand why a lot of any developers go that middle of the road route where they end up making a, a game they don't really like. I think we'd all be better off if, if they would just make the games they wanted to make. Great. So we're talking with Eric uh, from Caravel Games. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Bye.